In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about what happens when a single mom with breast cancer has no choice but to return quickly to work following her mastectomy. It's a story of learning to give grace to ourselves and to others, and also learning that we never really know what a person is dealing with behind the scenes. My guest today is Lisa Jones Christensen. Lisa was diagnosed at 39 with stage 3 hormone-positive breast cancer and the BRCA1 gene mutation. Lisa is a business school professor who teaches strategy and entrepreneurship, a career coach, and a consultant to social impact businesses. Lisa says she was in denial about her young breast cancer diagnosis for a good 10 years and is only now figuring out how to integrate those years into her present identity. She is currently training to be a trauma-informed coach and teacher and is writing a book on the intersection of trauma and entrepreneurship. She's coming to us today from Utah, where she is the mother of a teenage son, and she says she is in desperate need of a creative hobby. Welcome to The Burn, Lisa. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming. So we are going to hear a piece from you now that you wrote for our body issue. As we're recording this, the body issue just came out. You guys listening will be hearing this after the fact. But Lisa's story is out now, and it's called Never Assume. Lisa, I'll let you take it away. Okay. I had not yet thrown out or given away all my maternity clothes. My only child was now a one-year-old but I still had the nice maternity workwear hanging around from before he was born. I had spent too much money on the best pieces to easily discard them, and I had saved them for a second pregnancy, something that was now out of the question. Yet today, the clothes would come in handy again. The formal navel pants and the crisp white maternity blouse were still in the back of the closet. I pulled out both and put them on over my homemade post-double mastectomy surgery drain holder contraption that we had haphazardly strapped down over my stomach and belly. It was strapped to my belly because my chest was too sore and swollen to handle any pressure. I was now ready to head into work, looking very pregnant, but completely not pregnant. The double mastectomy was so fresh that the tubes and drains were still inserted and doing their job, but I also had a job to do. I was contractually bound to go back to the classroom to teach executive education for a long, full weekend. That meant three days standing up and making jokes and keeping people entertained and acting like my old self. I needed the money, and I had created the course, so it seemed necessary to meet that commitment. 
I had only just been diagnosed and just finished surgery, so I wasn't too tired. But going back to work so soon after surgery meant that I had to go to work with all the post-op gear. I wasn't ready to answer questions from strangers, particularly because I had no answers. And given what they had paid to come to class, I didn't want to turn class into a teacher-has-cancer-downer. Luckily, this new contraption and the maternity clothes would spare the students and spare me questions over the next few days. It would be a lie to say that I had invented the equipment rigging just for this weekend of work. The truth is that I invented the contraption to help me be hands-free during post-op healing and the concurrent daily work of mostly solo baby raising. I obviously couldn't hold my baby yet, and I certainly couldn't lift him. But when fully mobile, I could pick up the toys he threw or bring bottles to the crib or the high chair where he waited until a visitor could help me move him. All the simple things I could do required my hands to be free and my body to be as mobile as possible. Thus, I rigged the post-op drain holders hanging off the pour out of me by attaching each of the long tubes with diaper pins to alternate sides of a skinny designer belt that lay tightened next to my skin and under my clothes. For a regular day, a baggy sweatshirt could cover this bulk around my waist and belly. I could leave the gear hanging free to access for the hourly wound care. However, this was not to be a regular day, so I got some help taping the whole rigging down. It took five elastic bandages wrapped over and around the bulky gear and each other. The downside of my innovation? With all that gear under there, I now looked very pregnant. Thus, the professional maternity clothes. With the maternity clothes over the gear, I was ready to go. My cancer, tight, stage, and tumor size meant that my mastectomy came first and that chemo and radiation would follow. Thus, I still had great hair and as much energy as your average full-time working 39-year-old sole breadwinner mom who was a pre-tenure professor with a stage 3 cancer diagnosis. So there I was, one week post-double mastectomy, with my now concave chest wrapped in post-op gauze and my now temporarily bulging stomach area wrapped with several rolls of elastic bandage strips. I was ready to deliver the lectures and the comedy show mix I always try to balance. When one of the students, who'd been paying attention all morning, asked me at lunch, when is the baby due? I had the perfect answer. I wanted to spare him being embarrassed, and I probably wanted to keep me from being embarrassed too. I didn't want to reply, sorry, I am not what I seen. I was actually just barely diagnosed with fast-growing stage 3 breast cancer, and if I had better insurance or a different lice, I could have canceled this class and worked on recovery. But instead, I'm standing here in clothes meant for a different purpose, with both of my breasts recently removed, and I might die before I ever plan, and my actual baby is home but I can't pick him up yet. Thank you for asking, and how are you? Instead, I came up with the perfect phrase to extricate myself. Thinking of the timeline that the nurse guide had given me, I did some quick calculations, rubbed my pregnant belly significantly, and simply said, this part will all be over in three more months. He smiled knowingly, but so unknowingly, and I smiled too, for him and for me, and because I read that good humor helps you heal. We were thinking totally different things, but we both had a different positive future state top of mind. If you look closely enough, you can have something in common with many people. Also, nothing is what it seems after diagnosis. And of course, it probably wasn't what it seemed before. I will never assume anything about seemingly pregnant people again.
Nothing is what it seems, and that is a fine lesson, whether you have a cancer diagnosis or not. Some things are better and some are worse, but it is best to never think you know for sure. Oh, Lisa, such a good story. Thank you so much for that. We are going to take a quick break here for a testimonial. And when we come back, we'll dig into your story. And those of you listening, be sure to stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by Lisa's story. Hi, friends. There is now a wildfire book in the world. It is a big, beautiful compilation of my favorite essays from Wildfire Magazine, spanning all the way back to our first ever issue in 2016, up to the summer of 2022. This book took years to create and is literally the resource I wish I had had when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. This book is called Igniting the Fire Within, and it's made up of 50 essays that really dig into the experience of having breast cancer in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Every stage of breast cancer is represented from DCIS to stage four, from all sorts of walks of life from all around the world. Our writers go deep and get vulnerable to heal their own experiences and to let others like you know that you're not alone you will find yourself within these pages. Get Igniting the Fire Within, stories of healing, hope, and humor inside today's young breast cancer community on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle now. Curl up with it today. Hi, everyone. My name is Karen, and I'm from Colorado. I was diagnosed with stage 3A triple negative breast cancer at the age of 41. Hearing stories from other young women diagnosed with breast cancer is helping me process what I have gone through the past year, and wildfire has been instrumental in my healing process. I was really struggling to put pen to paper to capture my experience and share my story. April's writing workshops and the Burn podcast have given me the tools via these prompt writing exercises to capture my story and to help me process triggering events. Thank you, Wildfire, for helping me find my voice, introducing me to a community of women who are experiencing the same things that I'm experiencing, and the courage to share my story with the world. Thank you so much for that love. A listener note that Karen Ranieri has passed away from metastatic breast cancer. At the time we're recording this in July, she's just passed away. But I wanted to play her message there for us to remember Karen and to also get to um, hear her sweet words. So thank you again, Karen. Rest in power. All right, Lisa, turning back to you. Thank you so much for your story today. It was lovely hearing you read it again. Thank you. Thank you for letting me read it. It changes when you read it out loud. It does, doesn't it? So we recently got to do a recording with you at our body storytelling event, and you read this story. Tell me a little bit about how it shifts for you versus, you know, being on the page, being on the screen or being in the paper magazine versus telling it out loud. I think the shift, lots of things happen, right? As you read it, um, the teacher and me, the editors, finds things that I would change. Um, So there's that. But the other part is it just comes back differently. So to read it out loud, um, it became, you know, it compressed time. Uh, I also remember different things when I say it out loud. So... It really does change. 
Yeah, I can appreciate that um, editor brain wanting to kick in and, and change yep. things. We would fiddle, right? And forever if we could. <laughs> Well, I one of the things I really love about your story, besides the fact that it's a really good story in and of itself, is this craft of storytelling. And I always want to get to how a person has learned certain lessons, you know, and the the lessons I feel are kind of coming out of your story are the, you know, giving grace to yourself and also, you know, never making assumptions about people, particularly about someone being pregnant, of course, but, you know, just the, the larger, we never really know what's going on. And I think those are, um, they're a little bit cliche. We say them all the time to each other, like you never know, but I love a story that really gets into the, how did you learn this lesson? And I think you, you did that so beautifully. And I'm just curious you know, about your kind of writing process, do you, did you work this backwards or how did this story kind of come out for you? Um, I've never told anyone this, especially you, but I really thought hard. I really wanted to be public. I wanted to make it into your magazine. I really oh. wanted to, to make it. So I thought I have to have a, a lesson from, from cancer about my body. And so I thought about also what what stories that I tell when I make it humorous for other people, when I um, package it for others, and that this was one where all the themes that that were painful for me about the diagnosis, the fertility issues, the loneliness, um, the busyness that um, and distractions. So I thought um, it was hard to pick one lesson, right? But um, the other memory I had was. People ask you all kinds of questions when you go through all the treatment, and often they give a clue to what answer they want to hear. But I'm one of those people that never has a response at the time, the right response at the right time. I think I've been in bed later, three days later, months later, and it was one of the rare times when that sweet student, like I had, I came up with the answer on the fly, and that was the right thing to do. And so... um I mixed what I just told you was a mixture of answering your question about writing. And so in my process, I tried to think what's a tight lesson with a tight moment in time. And um, if I could, they felt like they matched each other. And I picked that lesson so that it could be short enough so I can hopefully win you over when you didn't have a face uh, or just this new magazine I found that, that was giving so much help. Well, it worked. Um, my I <laughs> I, listeners might not know this, but we have um, kind of a, a little process, you know, we go through for the production of each magazine. And at this point, I'm so lucky to have um, my teammates, Monica and Angela, also reading stories. And they are kind of my pre-screen at this point in terms of stories. And we have a little voting process like, you know, I really love this story and here's why. Or, you know, if we're able to go back to a writer and say, can you, can you draw this part out? You know, little things like that as we build a issue. And your story had a note right next to it from Monica that was like, oh my God, she answered this question so perfectly. I love this story so much. So you did it. <laughs> you did it. Yeah. But I also love you just kind of gave a little, a very succinct little masterclass in what I think is really good storytelling, which is to link a lesson with a moment in time that really shows how you learned this thing. And so I'm curious, 
I'm going to put you on the spot and you don't have to answer it. But do you have another lesson rattling around that you're thinking about writing the story behind? Uh, I do, actually. I think I have a couple um, now that I'm thinking about it more because of your prompts. And uh, I actually, it's about what I was hinting at earlier, how people want you to respond a certain way and how you learn to read the people that are trying to help you, how to help them. So mm-hmm. there's there are some other lessons or just thoughts I have that if someone had shared them with me, I would have felt less lonely. So sometimes they're tips, sometimes they're lessons. Yeah. Well, I love that. And one of the ways that I go about um, doing this is similar to you. You know, I think about these different lessons I've learned. And then I make a list of the various scenes that I might be able to use to tell that story. And um, and eventually, you know, it depends on how long a piece is, right? Like how many scenes you might need for a story. And I love that in this particular issue, you had this w- very clear day, you know, when this whole thing kind of came together. Um I don't really have a question embedded in that. I just want to say writer to writer. I really love, I love your process. <laughs> well, the prompts really help, right? You did give for this body issue. It wasn't just the body, right? right? You had a couple of nuances because you, you're in not your first, it's like your third or more. Seven. How many have you done? This was our seventh body issue. Yeah. So the guidance really helps. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm always striving to help people tell stories that go past that medical file, you know, and past just the facts into not just these lessons like we're talking about, but like, how did the whole thing make you feel? And sometimes those feelings aren't just tied up in the diagnosis or in the treatment plan, but more in that like living after that, the next day, you know, and how you assimilate this, like you said, sometimes that's in the conversations you're having with care team or family. Sometimes it's in the logistics of having to go right back to work. I want to talk to you a little bit about that time period for you. Um, Like you said, and I shared in your bio, you were a single mom at the time and you had to get right back to work. And you also mentioned that you were a little bit in denial about this this new identity of maybe being a cancer um, patient. Can you talk a little bit about that time period and and kind of those dueling identities? Yes, I think, you know, you read how in some ways you need to stay busy. Uh, we can't just stop and say my full-time job is to be sick and get well that studies show maybe... They have to show for some of us. I didn't have the luxury of choosing. I just had to keep working. And um, and I just wanted to, I didn't want too much sympathy. I wanted, I had maybe, maybe too much pride then of just, I can still do this. I can still be me. I also, um, it kept, it was like a through line I understood. I didn't know what the future held. I didn't understand a lot about treatment. I didn't understand how to be a mom. Like that was all new. Um, so having to work was something easier to be angry at too, you know? Um, how could my coworkers demand this of me or why did I set up a life that I can't take this break? Um, but it also, if I would be lying if I said it didn't help. Sometimes the days have some structure. Hmm. Did that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Because I think it is one of the challenges, um, probably for anyone facing a major illness is like, how do I, if I can fold this into my life that I've already built for myself and try to continue that part forward, but also honor that there are going to be some changes along the way. Um, and I know you kind of more recently, you know, came into the community and found the community at that time back then, were you seeking out people who were also dealing with breast cancer or was it more like, you know, let me just get on with the business of motherhood and and work? No, I was seeking out anything, right? And the resources have changed so much. So at the time, probably what happens to every woman is people tell you about a friend, right? Or they come forward and tell you about themselves. I actually was hungry for written words, so I would buy all the books. And I love reading. I love books. I have a reverence for books, but I actually remember throwing two of them across the room. That's so, so like sacrilegious to me. I love books. And I threw them because I was tracking the author. Like she and I were, she was giving me advice. We were similar in our lives until something happened where our stories deviated. Like one author, Mm. she could go on to have more children, didn't affect her fertility. Another author didn't have to work and got to stop and garden. And I just, um, I thought I felt like they were disloyal to me. Like we were the same where you, you were advising me, you were trustworthy, you understood me. And so I was so hungry for, for people, um, strangers or, you know, people I might know that could guide anything. Mm -hmm. I can relate to that. Um, I don't know if I literally threw a book, but when you said that, I remember feeling that kind of a little bit of betrayal when I would discover that an author had passed away. And it took me a while to realize that there are still so many lessons. I now know that none of us are going to get out of this life alive, right? Like, but somehow that did still feel like a betrayal. Like, wait, what, what are you going to teach me if you didn't, you know, quote unquote, survive this? And that just goes to show my, um, how green I was, you know, right after diagnosis. And, you know, I thought that there were rules and you just follow those rules and you get to live or something like that. And so it's hard when you're looking for, for, you know, guides, gurus in this space to realize you, you kind of have to make your own path and you just take pieces from all the people's experiences. You're right. And, and I see that now, but you're, you're remembering too, just when it's so fresh, you think you're supposed to only surround me with good news. So that is not good news. (laughs) Right. Right. Only, only point me to the people who have won at this thing, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you uh, about the work that you're doing now and this intersection of trauma and entrepreneurship. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was already studying entrepreneurs in developing countries when I was diagnosed. And um, actually, it helped me a lot have perspective to realize I was meeting women who would never get treatment. I was working in different countries in Africa. And um, and there just really isn't medical care in the regions where I was working. So it helped me be grateful for the services that I could have. It was very uh, inspiring to see these women also, for different reasons, with a different issue, just fight to keep to keep making life good for themselves, for their families. So entrepreneurship 
has been a through line anyway, right? As as a way it can emancipate or help. It's more than making money. And I think kind of as you said in my bio, I'm only recently being willing to admit the trauma of a diagnosis. I thought for a while, I'll just deny it, move past it, ignore it. People have harder things. I'm a lucky one that I'm here. Um, And now I've learned that that's not healthy for me and that the stories we tell can be helpful. And so um, it first came from the refugees and immigrants and and international entrepreneurs I was meeting, but it's, I would be lying if it's not more personal now. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's really interesting um, personally, because during the work I've done um, over these past several years with wildfire, I have had the pleasure of crossing paths with so many people who experienced a breast cancer diagnosis and then have gone on to create some kind of resource that they either felt was lacking. Personally, that's the case for me. I really created wildfire selfishly because I needed that. But others have created resources they just think would have been easy, made it easier, you know, to travel this, this quote unquote path. Um, and one of the interesting things I've discovered is that most of the entrepreneurs I now call friends, breast cancer wasn't the first trauma that came along. There have been lots. Well, in fact, I should say I've yet to meet a single breast cancer patient who's never experienced anything else, you know, somewhat challenging or traumatic in their life. But it's just so interesting to me that you've identified there. there's a correlation between maybe that kind of person who, who might experience a trauma and then go on to make something else. Well, one of my goals is to not, when we know that we've had a trauma or we identify it or we're ready and able to talk about it. And as you say, very few people have just one. Um, as we're willing to talk about them, uh, the world often can tell us that must be only bad or only lead to bad things, or it does change us. And we do know that we've had some hard outcomes from it. So sometimes there can be something that about us as survivors and people who keep fighting and keep growing and making something might not be their first venture either, right? Where they continue to use entrepreneurship to deal with the ways that trauma has affected them. I like to find that it's not all bad. Maybe that's a version of my story. It seems like it's one thing, but don't assume it all has bad things. It can make you a very determined entrepreneur. Right. And there's a fine line there between... Um... I think some people chafe at this idea of silver linings or, you know, things only happen for a reason or, you know, all those little platitudes that we sometimes hear. But I do personally subscribe to this idea that, like you said, that that these things that happen to us shape us and we have no choice really but to be changed by them as we move forward. That's They're making us, they're molding us in one way or another, regardless of whether we want to admit that or not. I think that's so true. Um, they, it, we don't have to subscribe, as you said, to the silver lining or everything happens for a reason to at least begin to say, this is part of me now. And I, I took a, a, the road took a fork and I'm on this one now. How, how do I look around and see what I have, what I don't have, and how do I make the best of it? Exactly. And I think, um, 
Yeah. It, it just makes me realize too that where I've found the most happiness and fulfillment in my life is when I don't spend all my time trying to get back to that previous version, which of course I did after my breast cancer diagnosis. I spent a few years, you know, everyone said I would bounce back to normal. So I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing, but I found true happiness when I finally decided to move, you know, in a forward direction instead of just banging my head against that, trying to go back. Have you found that to be your case too? Uh, to be honest, I think that um, I I am waking up to that now. That's why I, yeah, I think if we're honest, I rewrote my bio to say this is I'm new at figuring this out, even though I'm old at being diagnosed. And so in some ways I intersect with many of your readers and listeners because it's very new to integrate it and own it. And um, work was very stressful and um, trying to get tenure was very demanding. And so I don't know that I was went back to normal, but I just focused uh, on immediate urgent things. And again, fires, I call them fires. They weren't the fires that were just always right in front of me. So you asked if... Um, it it's do it's now or I can incorporate it into my bio or I am the happiest ever since I have let it be part of my story or shared with someone. Mm. So I really see a change from trying to act like it's not part of my life to owning it. And I I wish I'm not too hard on my timeline. I couldn't have done it differently. But if anyone can is at a crossroads and could go towards that, I would, I'm a vote just like you were for, for not waiting. Mm -hmm. There's great stuff. There's more happiness. It's hard. It's a crazy thing to say, right? Um, owning it. There's a lot of happiness on the other side. Yes. Which kind of brings us full circle to this body issue. Um, Dana Donafrey was my guest editor on it. And we talked a lot in putting the issue together about this idea of a changing landscape, you know, of, of body, but also of mind. And I love what you just said about maybe being kind of new to survivorship in this way and that that's okay. There doesn't have to be a specific timeline for how we assimilate these things that happen to us. And you said you wouldn't necessarily have changed it. Like the person you are now is ready to assimilate these, these past experiences. I love that phrase of the changing landscape because I made a lot of different body choices, you know, no reconstruction, delayed reconstruction, problems with reconstruction. It really was a changing landscape. And um, the only thing I wanted was to just always be growing, right? And always integrating. Mm -hmm. As long as we're growing, that's what we fought for, right? Um, yes. And um, so I loved that theme. Oh, I love that it resonated with you. Beautiful, beautiful story, Lisa. Thank you. Where can people find you or learn more about you online? I am new to Instagram. So many new things I'm tackling. So I am on Instagram. Very few posts, but they'll be growing. And that is, yeah, I think you will have it posted, but it's at Dr. Lisa Jones Christensen. And um, I still uh, love email and really talking to people. So if anyone wants to talk about anything in here, I would love to talk to them too. 
Excellent. Well, we'll be sure to link to you in the show notes so everyone who wants to can find you and and this important work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate this chat today. Thank you for the magazine and the chat. Thanks. Well, I'm April Stearns, and you have been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young people like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat with Lisa. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our rich 40-plus issues in the Wildfire Archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There is no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. If you like what you hear, please take a moment and leave us a five-star review. I would be forever grateful. All right, here is your writing prompt. I want you to set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping or editing. The prompt is, I wish I said, I wish I said, pulling back to Lisa's story. I wish I said. So eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. And if you find that you write best with a good writing prompt, I have more writing prompts and writing lessons I've created just for you. Head over to wildfirecommunity.org slash free to download those today. Thank you so much.